Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. So today we start a new series, in, and it's called Kindness through discipline. Those things, those, those two terms seem contradictory, don't they? Kindness through discipline. When you think of discipline, do you think of kindness? And when you think of kindness, do you think of discipline? Probably not. Last month, we looked at the book of Habakkuk, which is a three-chapter prophetic book in the Old Testament. Habakkuk was a contemporary of Jeremiah, who we also have a prophetic book of in the Old Testament. Jeremiah's book is much, much longer than Habakkuk's uh, over 50 chapters. And so Jeremiah is who we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be looking at the world through Jeremiah's lens. Now, we're not going to look at the whole book, but there are sections from Jeremiah's prophetic works that we'll be looking at. The first one Today is the potter and the potter's wheel. Are you familiar with that? Some of you are, some of you may not be. So the potter in the Old Testament, as we look at Jeremiah, um, the potter would have been somebody who formed clay on a wheel. And uh, J.I. Packer in the Bible Almanac, this is how he describes what the potter and the clay and all of that did, how it functioned, how it worked. He says, the potter's wheel is one of mankind's earliest inventions and has changed surprisingly little in the last 6,000 years. The potter's wheel is not one wheel, but rather two. There's a base with a shaft and a top base that's about hand level. And it's that wheel that is kicked with the bottom foot so that the top part spins and the clay that is thrown on that is worked. Back in those days, they would use wood as their base and as the shaft and as the top piece. Before using the wheel, however, the potter has to do something to the clay. I don't know if you've looked, uh, seen a potter work a wheel, but before, they, the, before the clay is actually begun to be shaped, the potter beats it into submission. The reason why is because there may be impurities in there. If there are impurities or if there are air bubbles in the clay, he's got to beat out every imperfection and every impurity before he can actually throw it in a ball right in the center of the, the wheel so he can begin to form it. And this takes time. Have you ever kneaded dough before? I remember watching my grandmother do that. She's making biscuits and gravy from scratch, you know. And how you knead the dough. Why do you do that? To work out the imperfections, to break down the flour, to do all of the mixing. So similar with the clay. You have to knead it. You have to beat it. You have to pound it. He then cuts it or she cuts it. And then they slam the two pieces back together. Have you ever felt that way? (laughs) So once the clay is ready, the potter will throw this ball of clay down on the upper wheel as close to the center of that wheel as he or she can get it. 
And then they start kicking the wheel into motion. And then with their hands, or with their thumbs, they force the center of the clay to push it out. Now what you'll see, if you're watching the very beginning process of this, they force it out and then they push it back together. They force it out and then they push it back together. They do this several times, again, to continue to work the imperfections out and to make the clay more flexible and moldable for the process of being shaped into something that can actually function with a purpose. And once they've done that, they will open up the clay by pressing their thumbs into the center and gradually hollowing it out and shaping and applying pressures inside and out with the fingers so that there's an even thickness on the walls as the vessel is shaped. And eventually it's shaped either into a vase, a pitcher, or whatever the potter chooses. As a term, there are terms that are used in pottery making. The first one's called force. You have to force the clay into submission. You have to force the clay out from the middle and into a shape. You have to force the air out of it before you even get to that point. You have to force the impurities out of it before you get to that point. The term master is also used. We don't like that term, and especially in our culture, because you might get canceled if you use that term. But the reality is there has to be a master that works the clay. And master doesn't mean to, in essence, especially lord over, but rather to have charge of or authority of. Now, you can abuse your charge or authority over another, which leads to some very corrupt and horrible things. But in God's kingdom, to be in that position of authority is honestly to be a servant. And so the master is servant to serve the clay so that he can shape this vessel into something of use. Jeremiah 18 describes God as the potter, having trouble at his will because his people refused to obey him. This was a familiar image to the people in biblical times because they could often see the potter's wheel in the marketplace of virtually every village and town around. We don't see it as much now. We, we go to stores and we buy mugs and pots and dishes and different things made out of clay that have been baked in a kiln and glazed and all of that. But in those days, that was a commonplace thing to see in any society as a potter and the potter's wheel. So now when you're reading Jeremiah 18 and you see God has told Jeremiah, I want you to go to the local potter's house and I want you to watch him throw the clay on the wheel because I want you to experience and see what's going on there. And I want you to understand that what's going on in that space at that time is an image of what's happening to my people and my discipline of them. So, if you would, turn with me to Jeremiah 18. I'm reading from the New Living Translation today, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 12. Typically, in most commentaries, it's read chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, but I want to give you verse 12 because I want you to see the response of God's people to their being formed by the potter who is God. 
The Lord gave a message, or it says here, another message to Jeremiah. If you want to know the other messages God's been giving to Jeremiah, I encourage you to read the first 17 chapters of Jeremiah. I promise you, you will not be disappointed, because I want you to be able to see the parallels that exist within our society today and what was happening in Jeremiah's day. They are eerily similar to the way the American culture and actually the global society is today. The Lord gave another message to Jeremiah. He said, go down to the potter's shop and I will speak to you there. So I did as he told me and I found the potter working at his wheel. The jar he was making did not turn out as he had hoped, so he crushed it into a lump of clay again and started over. The Lord gave this message to me, or gave me this message. O Israel, can I not do to you as the potter has done to this clay? As the clay is in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand. If I announce that a certain nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, but then that nation renounces its evil ways, I will not destroy it as I'd planned. And if I announce, now let me stop there for a second. What's he saying here? If I announce that a nation should be destroyed, is he just saying Israel? So God is just not a God of Israel. He is a God of the whole world because there is no other God. And what he's saying is, if I decide that a nation should be torn down, then it will be torn down. Not just Israel, but any nation. Okay? If I announce a certain nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, but then that nation renounces its evil ways, I will not destroy it as I had planned. If you think back to a four-chapter book in the Old Testament, prophetic books called Jonah, what happens? Jonah is called of God to go to a place called Nineveh. Is Nineveh a place that worships Yahweh, the God of the Jews? No. They worship many gods, Baal, Asherah, and a plethora of other gods. They are a polytheistic group who worships many gods. And their behavior had become so detestable to God that he called Jonah to go tell them, I'm getting ready to wipe you guys out. And Jonah's like, oh, heck no, I'm not going over there. And what does he do? He goes to the coastal regions of the Mediterranean, where current day Israel is, and he ships off to Tarshish. Most scholars believe that Tarshish is in the southern region of Spain. He was going the full expanse of the Mediterranean Sea to go away from what God had told him to do. As we know the story, and maybe you don't, but most of us do, storms start raging, the boat he's on starts rocking, everybody's panicking, and Jonah's down in the bow of the ship sleeping. And they go arouse him to wake him up, bring him up to the top and said, you need to help us, we're going to sink. Pray to whatever God you need to pray to. And he's like, well, really, this is all happening because of me. Just throw me overboard and it'll all be fixed. See, did you notice Jonah didn't say, send me back, 
I'm in disobedience to my God. He says, throw me over. I'd rather die than do what God's calling me to do. This is not a story about Jonah today, but I want you to see the parallels here. And so, after they said, I hope the blood of your death is not on our hands, they kind of cleaned themselves of the responsibility of throwing him overboard, and he gets thrown overboard, and while he's sinking into the depths, he's praying a prayer, and a fish, a large fish, swallows him whole, and then swims back to where he had poured it out from and vomits him out on the beach. For three days in the journey of the belly of a fish. And finally he's like, fine! Seriously, that's how he did it. If you read, I think it's chapter 3. All right, now that's not true. This is my embellishment on that. But he realizes he's not going to get off that scot-free. And so he finally relents. And it says it's a three-day journey across Nineveh. So he gets to Nineveh and it says he travels partway through it, a day and a half maybe, and he's like, you all are going to die. That's pretty much what he did. I'm not joking. It's not like if you repent and turn to God, he'll save you. But if you don't, God's wrath will come and you'll all be destroyed. He's like, nope, you all are going to die. God's already told me you're dead. (laughs) And they do what? It says in there that they were like, Oh, no. They actually believed what he had to say. Their souls were in a place that they were receptive to hear that message and then call out, well, what do we need to do? He doesn't give them any information, but by instinct, they turn to God. And they repent and ask for forgiveness. Jonah doesn't realize that God's still not going to destroy them. So he goes out onto the edge of town on kind of a hillside and overlooks the city, and he's waiting. I get the sense that he's wringing his hands because he's waiting for God to zap them. And after time, it doesn't happen, and he hears from God, and he's like, I knew, I, I knew that if, if, if I went and I said something to them and they, by some freak chance, decided to repent of their sins, then you would be a merciful God because that's what you are. Can you imagine being mad at God because he's merciful? But he was. You know why? Because the Ninevites were of the Assyrian Empire and the Assyrians were like our modern-day jihadists who go in and blow people up in suicide bombings. If you do any research on the Assyrians, they were a horrible group of people. They mastered in torture and destruction. They terrorized nations. Even their own people were afraid. And so Jonah thinks they've got what's coming to them. You ever thought that about somebody in your life? You're like, Lord, strike them down. You see, God has the ability to do that. And it's our lack of a holy fear in God that we walk around doing things we shouldn't do and not doing the things we know we should do. Throwing all caution to the wind, realizing or not realizing that there is an all-holy God that will hold us to account. If not now, someday. 
And so Jeremiah is hearing this from the Lord while he's in the potter's shop watching the potter work the clay. And God is telling him, if a nation renounces its evil deeds, then I will not destroy it as I had planned. So God can change his mind? Huh. I was told God had everything pre-planned, everything pre-fixed, but this isn't the only time we read this in Scripture. There are countless times where God had a plan he was going to play out and do, but then he changed in response to humans. Well, does that make God weak? We're going to talk about that today. Does it make God weak if he can change his mind? I contend no, and I'll explain in just a moment. But let's continue on. If I announce a certain nation or kingdom to be uprooted or torn down or destroyed, but then that nation renounces its evil ways, I will not destroy it as I had planned. And if I announce that I will plant and build up a certain nation or a kingdom, but then that nation turns evil and refuses to obey me, I will not bless it as I said I would. Now he's referring to Israel. I will bless you, Abraham. And others will be blessed through you and by you, other nations. And will make your descendants so large they will outnumber the stars of the sky and the grains of sand on the earth. If I announce that I will plant and build up a certain nation or a kingdom, but then that nation turns to evil and refuses to obey me, I will not bless it as I said I would. Therefore, Jeremiah, go and warn all Judah and Jerusalem. Judah and Jerusalem are the only Small pieces of territory that are left of the nation of Israel. The northern ten tribes had already been wiped out by the Assyrians. And Shiloh, their place of worship, was wiped out, their capital city. And all that's left are the tribes of Benjamin and the larger tribe Judah in the southern kingdom, which encapsulates just a small region around Jerusalem. And so now God is telling Jeremiah in the potter's shop, go back and tell the people, this is what the Lord says, I'm planning disaster for you instead of good. So turn from your evil ways, each of you, and do what's right. That's usually where commentaries end because this section is usually encapsulated from verses 1 to 11. But I wanted you to see what the people's response would, would be. But the people replied, Don't waste your breath. We will continue to live as we want, stubbornly following our own evil desires. Here's the key point. God is always willing to shape and remold us if we are willing to submit. Do you catch the conditional status of that statement? If we are willing to submit to God's ways, not just in part of our lives or a little segment of our lives over here, because we are great segment people. We like to segment our spiritual life and our church life separate from our family life, separate from our work life. But in God's kingdom and in God's economy, it is not separate. It is all one. 
Just as the clay, the ball of clay is all one, you don't segment it out except to slap it back together to work out the imperfections. It is all one lump to be molded and shaped into something of purpose. But we must submit to the process, and that process is painful at times. I want to look at what it means to start over today. As you've seen the picture of the video earlier where the potter's working the clay and it starts to buckle or fold or they just look at it and they're like, it's not up to my standards, and they crush it in on itself. What does it mean to start over? Well, we first have to look at the potter in the scenario here. In working the material, there are times when the potter is compelled to abandon the pot that he's working on and begin again. In this case, he simply reworks the same piece of clay. Do you notice what the potter did not do in Jeremiah 18? Right. He didn't take that clay and throw it against a wall which some of us might do but out of anger. He didn't take that lump of clay and throw it in the trash or out the door. He crushed it in on itself and then began to mold it again. You see, that's what God does with us. You who are believers in Christ are clay being molded and shaped each and every day. That's why our mission statement is that we help people know Christ intimately, grow in Him continually, and go for Him daily. The growing in Him continually is the molding. How long do you think you are molded till you are in your final shape? Okay, we'll talk about that in a minute. If we take this analogy for what it's intended in the passage here, then we have to realize certain things about the Father, God, and His creation, you and I, humans, as well as the potter and the clay in Jeremiah's analysis. Unlike the actual potter, see, God created the clay. Most potters don't create clay. They go get clay, right? But God, the potter in the scenario, spiritually created the clay. Then you might ask the question, then why didn't he create the clay perfect? Well, he did. In the beginning, God created perfect human beings in the garden, Genesis 1 and 2. They were without blemish, without fault. There was nothing in them that was wrong. But where did it go off the rails? Where did imperfection invade the perfect human structure? In Genesis 3. We say, well, God's to blame for that because he put that stupid tree in there. And so God gets the blame yet again. God created perfection. But he created the possibility of imperfection. And you say, well, why? But this is one of the questions I get as a pastor all the time. Why did God put the tree there? Why did God put a stumbling block in front of the people? Well, I don't see it as a stumbling block. I see it as a choice. Because let's think of God for a moment in the sheerest, most gut-level terms we can think of. And you've heard me say this if you've been here long enough. God's 
central characteristic is what? A couple of you believe that. God is love. Now, I want you to unpack that for me because the world in our day and age, specifically our culture, has perverted love. They have perverted this word we call love. The sad reality is in our culture we have one word for love, but in the biblical times, in Greek, there were four, some say five words for love. And the different terms for love were used for different types of love and different things. In our culture, we have one word for love we use for all different types of things. You can love a chili dog, and you can love your kid. Are those the same types of love? I would hope not. If they are, then you need to go see a counselor, right? If God is love, then what kind of love is God? Well, Jesus uses the word love often. And do you know the word Jesus uses for love? The love of the Father, the love of the Father toward us. The kind of word that Jesus uses, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is this term called agape or agapeo. And that is a love that we talked about when we first started this series on the fruit of the Spirit that is selfless, sacrificial, and unconditional. It is not conditioned on whether or not you are lovable. That kind of love loves you in spite of your unlovableness. A couple of you think that's good. So great. Um, This is the kind of love that God is. God loves you even if you reject that love to your dying breath. He will still love you, and he will love you enough to give you what you desire. So now, let's go back to the scenario. The potter who created the clay, but then yet again molds the clay into something that should be of use as per his design, not ours. Created the best of all possible worlds. This is called Christian philosophy. Let me give you a little snippet of it because philosophy is like double speak in some regards and you kind of like, I have no clue what he's talking about. So let's think of the scenarios of the different kinds of worlds God could have created. God could have created a world without the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which God said, don't eat of it for if you eat it, you'll die. Okay, he could have created a garden and a world without that possibility. What kind of love that we know now through agapeo love is that it's not agape love if God created a world without the possibility for humans to choose to reject God then what kind of love is that you're like Brandon I I don't get what you're talking about okay look at your relationships with your spouse your significant other if you for can you force your spouse Or the person you're dating or your fiancé, can you force them to love you? Why not? What would happen if you could? Is that the kind of relationship you would love to live in where the person you are with is forced to be with you and forced to love you? That's That's a great relationship, right? We actually call that abuse in our day and age. Am I correct? So if God is love and God is not abuse, then he's not going to force himself on us. Okay, well, what if if God created a world in which 
in which, um, let, me, let me find my part here. I'm, I'm missing it here. I lost my place. Pause, put the pause button on for a second. What if God created a world where he just set it into motion and then said, I'll come back later and check on it? You know, when it's time to be done, then I'll come back. What kind of a God would do that? Now, some of the early founders of our nation, but not many, just literally like one or two, were what we call deists. And not deist in the sense we've come to know of it today, but a deist or somebody who believes there is a God who created everything and designed everything, set the world in motion like a great clockmaker. He wound it up, and now it's in the winding down phase. And when it's completely wound down till it finally stops is when he'll step back in and fix everything. That is a God who is disconnected, impersonal, and not love. That is not a God of the Bible. If we read the Bible, do you see God who wound stuff up and set it off to its own devices and, uh, and eventually will come back and set everything straight? And that's not the God of the Bible we read. See, God created a world in which there was a possibility for evil to enter that world because there was no other conceivable world possible for God to create as a being who his very nature is love. But I've said this before, God didn't create the world with that tree in the garden to tempt them or just say, nah, 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 you can't have this. He created it and he told them, do not eat this. See, God wasn't necessarily giving them a choice. He was saying, choose me, because if you do this, you'll die. He wasn't up there saying, well, you could choose this, or you could choose behind what's this, cur what's this curtain have to offer. No, he's saying, don't choose that. Choose me and live, because if you choose that, you'll die. And so God gives them a choice. And we know what the choice was. And we can curse God till our, dying, till our dying breath. We can throw aversions toward God for our own sinful nature and say it's his fault. But that's what we do, isn't it? I mean, look at Genesis 3. Isn't that what Adam and Eve did? Adam, what have you done after they've eaten of the fruit? God asks. And what's he say? It was that woman you gave me who tempted me and I ate. Woman, is this true? I was deceived by the serpent. Man, why can't we learn to submit to the Father's will and to be shaped into something of His grand design? Why do we always have to resist? The reason we resist is because of our selfish nature, thinking we can figure this out on our own. And as the potter shapes us, we become that clay in his hands through salvation. And he slaps us down in the center of his wheel and will. And he begins to mold and shape. We resist. No, 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 I don't like that. It doesn't feel good. I, I don't like what you're shaping me into. I know what I should be. 
I've got dreams and, and ambitions that, that, that I want to fulfill. I know everything that I want for me and my family. And God says, but you don't see the big picture. You don't see what I'm shaping you for. And I've got something in mind for you that will blow your mind. Trust me as I shape you, as I do the molding. It's not going to be comfortable, but I promise you it is good. And the potter who cares for you and I, as we're on this journey in following him, shapes us with a grand design that looks ugly in the middle of the shaping. It doesn't look right. But I promise you, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. But you must submit to the process of shaping. What about the clay? The clay is very stubborn. John Goldingay, a commenter, writes, one might see the clay as a simply malleable raw material that the potter can shape at will. Yet, like wood or stone that a sculptor works, it can seem to have a mind of its own. Do you know um, Michelangelo's David that sits over in Florence in a beautiful museum? And it stands, I mean, when you're there in present, and we got to see it a few years ago, when you're there, the very, you don't realize how big it is. Did you know that piece of marble had set for a very long time? Because other sculptors had looked at it and, and tried to figure out what they could, and they realized they couldn't shape anything out of it because it looked unshapeable. And Michelangelo decided to take a go at it, and it is one of the biggest, most masterful pieces of sculpture the world has ever known. But it had a mind of its own. See, sculptors just don't go in and start carving any random piece of stone or wood. They look at it. They look at the shape. They look at the bends. They look at the, the creases in the rock and, and the cracks and the possible problems they might run into as they're going through it. Clay on the potter's wheel is very similar. Sometimes it can resist the shaping process. Sometimes the clay won't turn into the shape that the potter has in mind, but he doesn't throw it away. He rolls it up again and starts over. I'm sure this is frustrating for the potter. I mean, you saw the little clip at the beginning, and you, <laughs> though you couldn't see the faces of the potters, you could see them, you know, the jerky motions on the hands, right? I did watch some other videos, and they're like, I could watch them, they're like, ooh! Do you ever think God gets that way with us? Well, no, God is love. He's always happy. No, God gets frustrated. I mean, we're reading a passage right now where he's saying he's going to wipe out a whole civilization. He gets frustrated. There are limits to God's patience, and we don't like to hear that. We like to think he's all the good things and none of the things we would consider bad. But even in God's wrath and judgment, he is still good because he is perfect. 
And so as he tries to shape nations and men and women, sometimes he gets frustrated. Like with the first king of Israel, King Saul. King Saul stepped out of what his purpose was to do things that he was not called to do. He resisted the forming and the shaping of God. And what did God tell Samuel about Saul? I regret having him made king. Wait, God can have regrets? This is what I was talking about we were going to get to really quickly. Because I know you're getting hungry and all that stuff and you're like... Uh, when's it going to be done? All right, so here, listen. So, so Saul, the first king of Israel, he looked the part, he acted the part, initially started as a great king. But then he started taking matters into his own hands for the kingdom of Israel, but he wasn't Israel's God. He was the intermediary for the people. And because he would not submit to the will of God, even when the going got tough and it looked like there was no way out, instead of trusting in God, he trusted in himself. And that's what our culture tells you. Believe in yourself. Trust in yourself. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have a good sense of confidence about yourself, but your confidence can only come from God, not from you, because you're not perfect and neither am I. And when I have confidence solely in me and I screw up, guess what happens? What happens to my confidence? What happens to my self-esteem? It just bolsters my insecurities because I know I'm not perfect. But if my trust is in God and I'm submitted to him, even when my back is against the wall, I say, God, I'm not saying I always do this, God, I don't know a way out. I don't know what to do next. And again, the question comes, as you've heard me say before, do you trust me? Yes, but I don't see a way out of this. Do you trust me? And I could be like Saul saying, yes, but, and do something that screws up a plan that God is trying to work through me. Or I can say, Lord, yes, and I'll wait even if I'm getting ready to be speared through by an enemy. Which one are you? Which one am I? We are a, re- right, we are a reactive people because we re- live in a reactive nation of people who have quickly forgotten the God on whom this nation was founded and the laws and principles in which it was founded. And we've decided to be our own gods and make our own way and resist the shaping and the forming as not only a people but as as individuals within society. And does it look better than it did 250 years ago? No, we are not perfect. There have been blights on the history of our nation. We, as an American people, have reason to be embarrassed at point in times within our history. But what made us a great nation was the potential to become better as we submitted to the will and the ways of God to self-correct our own erring ways, to allow God to continue to work out the imperfections 
And though he didn't do it in our exact timing, he continued to do it. But we are living in a day and age right now, it seems we are resisting to the point to where even the church is joining. Well, if you can't beat them, join them. And church after church is starting to say, well, what is love? Well, love is affirmation. No, 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 no. No, it's not. Love is love in spite of affirmation. And love doesn't affirm everything, especially that which goes against God. Love can stand firm in the truth of the selfless, sacrificial, uh, and unconditional way of life, but also have boundaries and standards. See, what was God's boundary and standard as a God of love? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said, that's my boundary. It will ruin you. It will destroy you. I don't want that for you. I want you to continue to be shaped and molded by me, but if you do this, you're going to die. We still keep eating from that stupid tree. Okay, so it's not fit. We don't go out to our backyard and pluck it off and physically eat it, but you know we're doing it. Do you know what's interesting about the clay? Is that the clay in the potter's hands is meant to be shaped into something beautiful. But the clay represented what nation? Israel. And what does God say he's going to do? You remember Habakkuk? Habakkuk, why do the evil people prosper? And those of us who have remained faithful to you, why do we get the shaft? And God says, hey, if I told you what I was going to do, you wouldn't believe me anyway. I'm sending the Babylonians to wipe you guys out. I'm sorry, what? The, the wicked people who have multiple gods that are not even gods, you're sending them to take care of us? And now Jeremiah, again, a contemporary of Habakkuk, he's hearing God's same message to him. You need to tell the people I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy them. I'm going to send many of them out as exiles, but I'm going to wipe out a whole group. That is not a loving God. Or is it? As parents, have you ever disciplined your child? Have they ever said, if you love me, you wouldn't punish me? Have you ever resisted discipline by, a family, by your family? We're told in Scripture that God disciplines those he loves. I want you to listen to Moses' words to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8. They're finishing up their 40 years of wilderness wandering, which was a punishment from God. And listen to what he says to the people who are getting ready to enter the promised land. For all these 40 years, your clothes did not wear out and your feet didn't blister or swell. Where were they living for 40 years? I'm sorry, say that again? Huh. Their clothes didn't wear out, their feet didn't blister or swell, and they were traveling a lot in the wilderness. God took care of them in the wilderness, even when he was punishing them. Same thing if you go back to Genesis 3, Genesis 4, when he kicks 
the man and the woman out of the garden, what does he do before he sends them out into the wilderness? He clothes them with animal skins that can withstand the elements they're getting ready to endure. What about Proverbs 3, 11 and 12? My child, don't reject the Lord's discipline and don't be upset when he corrects you. For the Lord corrects those he loves, just as the father corrects a child in whom he delights. And what about Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 11? As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who was never disciplined by his father? I have. And they're great kids, aren't they? You ever seen a kid that was never disciplined but was given everything that they ever demanded? Somebody said they're monsters. Was it you? They're monsters! If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are ill that you are illegitimate and are not really his children at all. So as believers in Christ, guess what? You're going to get a spanking every once in a while. Oh, that's, I'm sorry, we don't do corporal punishment. We say, no, no, no. Don't you do that. Anyway, I'm sorry, I digress. He goes on to say, since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. Praise God, because I don't have it all figured out. But God's discipline is always good for us, so that we might share in his holiness. Oh, I'd love to share in his holiness. But it's through discipline that I'm able to do that. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. Listen to what he says. Do you enjoy discipline? Well, you're weird if you do. No one enjoys discipline while it's happening. It's painful, he says. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who were trained in this way. And let me just give you one word about the starting over. This is the grace of God. If there was not forgiveness, nor was there grace in this God of love, he would throw you away at the first sign of imperfection. But God loved us so much that yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The one who did not need to be molded nor shaped who was perfect already, came into the world to show us what perfection looked like and show us the heart of the God who does love us because he was God in the flesh. And then he took up our imperfections. He became what? Sin. Who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So he took our imperfections by his stripes, Isaiah says in chapter 53. We are healed. You know, this Christian walk, as our worship team comes to close us out, can I tell you, you will not reach the perfectness that you desire to reach until Christ returns.
I know that sounds antithetical. You are only made perfect because your heavenly Father through Christ was perfect when you were unable to be. And so when you receive his son, Jesus, into your life, when you are fully submitted to him, guess what that blood of Jesus does? It fills in all of the cracks and the gaps of our imperfections so that God sees us through the blood of Christ on our lives and our submission to his son, we sees us as perfect because God is perfect. This is grace. We don't deserve this. Potter or the Father doesn't give up on you. As a believer in Christ, or even a, maybe you're not the lump of clay. Maybe you're, maybe you're still somewhere in the dirt, not even having been dug up. God desires to take you into his shop and to begin to mold you. And it takes you saying, okay, here I am. Choose me. He says, okay. And he takes you. And as you submit to Christ, he begins to form and shape you. He begins to work out the bubbles, the imperfections. And when things aren't working quite as designed, he, unlike the potter in the story, folds us in on ourselves. He says, I've got to start over. I've got to start over. I still love you. We're going to make this work. As long as you're willing to submit to my forming, we can make this happen. See, the clay is never thrown away unless it becomes hardened beyond use. So when do we get to the glazing and the transformation part to become a beautiful piece of pottery? We can be dull and matted and fragile. It's not until we reach the other side. Through the blazing fires of death, as we've submitted to Christ for all of our lives and continue to be grown and shaped and molded for his purposes, then we go through the fires of death, which have no hold on us, but turn us into this beautiful piece of work that only a masterpiece could do. I don't know where you are today. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I do know that God desires to use you and shape you. Let me close with this story so our worship team gets ready to, to lead us in a time of worship. Dr. David Jeremiah writes, Sometimes we think we are unusable and even unredeemable. We've done something for which we feel shame and guilt, and we begin to believe that God can no longer use us. Our problems are occasionally of our own making and our pain may arise from our own stupidity. But when we bring our sin to the Lord, when we confess it earnestly, when we nail it to the cross of Christ and surrender to the power of his shed blood, God can take our sin and our shame from us and then mold us into a vessel that glorifies him. In 1902, a 42-year-old woman sat in a prayer meeting with a broken heart. 
She had served the Lord faithfully all of her adult life in various capacities. At the time, dreaming of her heart's desire to take the gospel to Africa as a missionary. But when her plans finally seemed to be moving forward, a lack of financial support brought her dream to a standstill. Heartbroken, she attended a prayer meeting at a church. Hardly able to focus on what was going on around her, she was struck by the words of an elderly woman in that service that night who prayed, it really doesn't matter what you do with us, Lord, just have your own way with our lives. She couldn't get that idea out of her mind. Later that evening, she sat meditating on Jeremiah 18, the story of the potter shaping the clay. Before retiring for the night, Adelaide Pollard wrote out four stanzas to a beloved hymn entitled, Have Thine Own Way, Lord, which was published in 1907, which proclaims these words, Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will, while I am waiting, yielded and still. Father, we are at times frustrating to you, I know. But thanks for your patience, your compassion, your mercy, your unfailing love for us. And yes, God, thank you even for your discipline. For we know you discipline those you love. Father, forgive us where we've resisted the shaping and the molding to be what you've created us to be. Forgive us when we thought our way was better. Forgive us, God, when we wouldn't submit and relent in humility to your will and your ways. God, design us, shape us, mold us. Help us to be pliable and moldable for your good use and work. And remind us the shaping process is being shaped into what you desire, not what we desire for ourselves. Because what you desire for us is what you created us for, and what we were created for is the most fulfilling thing in life. Remind us when our backs are against the wall, and our reaction is to do something to get out of a situation that maybe you've allowed us to be there to be shaped. Forgive us where we've been impatient. Forgive us where we've maybe even cursed you in our own minds or with our own lips. Heal us in this place. If you need to, crumble us in on ourselves and start over. But don't ever throw us into the trash heap. We love you, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.